right, so what's real in this moment? Well, me sitting here on this chair, my feet on the carpet, my breathing. Oh, that's real. The demon in my mind, that's not there. All right, but it's there. Say hello to the demon in the mind. Hi, how are you going? Have fun trying to kill me. Good luck with that. My guest today is Paul Daniele. My conversation with Paul was an interesting one. As men, we often find it difficult to have a conversation that is truly open and vulnerable, to really see the other person's true self. It takes a lot of courage to open up, to tell your truth, to live your truth. And Paul has made an effort in every aspect of his life to do this. He has challenged his masculinity. He has challenged gender stereotypes that he once embodied. He challenged the conditioning that he was brought up in, but in many ways came back to the best parts and has become the man he is today because of his experiences. I found it an absolute joy to have this conversation, to hear someone open up, to open up myself and to discover that masculinity and manhood does not mean that you have to be closed, that you have to be mindful of what the other man will think. Masculinity is being courageous and strong in your own skin, with your own identity, and all the flaws that come with that. So I really hope you love this conversation as much as I did. So without further delay, I bring you Paul Daniele. Paul, g'day, welcome. Thanks for having me, Barney. My pleasure, my pleasure. We were just talking a little bit ago... And you were talking a little bit about a Sicilian lady that, uh, what were you saying, verging on 100, do you think? Uh, apparently she's 101 month old. Unbelievable. Didn't know they kept those around. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful though. Yeah, they, 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 built, they, they built them tough back in the day. Absolutely. I guess the reason we have that bit of that connection about Sicilians, si. Siciliani. Siciliani, yeah. We'll get it right one day. The connection that we've had a little bit has been language, a little bit, a bit about background, nationality. Super important back in uh, back in the teen years. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Do you think about it much anymore? What the teen years or the the ethnic stuff? The ethnic stuff. Oh, absolutely. Every day, it's it's coursing through my veins. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, yeah. So, how does it sort of conjure up? Well, for me, it's about a connection with my ancestors and. Through language and family. Yeah, yeah, it's present. It's very present. I've got a very strong connection with my own family here in Australia. And then the last few years I've been really forging more of a connection with my family overseas in Italy. You've got a big family. I've got a huge family, yeah. I'm, I'm the youngest of seven. Um, so there's seven kids in my family. And then, uh, where do you fit in? In I'm, that, I'm the youngest. Youngest, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's yep. seven um, nephews and nieces now. My dad's family, there was like four kids. My mum's family is five, and then my mum's dad, he was one of ten in Italy. So there's still like about seven or eight of them still alive over there, and they've all got their kids and their grandkids, and yeah, so pretty big family. Yeah, you've got the. Italian heritage, you've got yeah. the big family, yeah. northern suburbs of Melbourne, yeah. 
Um, so it's always going to be strong. I was I was just wondering that because I remember that the first question anyone asked back school aged, not only at our school but in most, it's like, what Nasho are you? What's your background? That's so fascinating that you mentioned that because I was just camping on the weekend and I was explaining it that it was interesting. There was another person there who grew up in the northern suburbs and we had this real affinity and we were talking about something and then I was explaining to another person that when we were growing up, it was very common for, yeah, the first or second question to be what's your Nasho, meaning Mm. what's your nationality, meaning what's your ethnic background. So it was like a really defining thing. But then also maybe part of that might have been a bit manufactured as well. It's like, well, I'm this, so therefore I'll like this certain way. Yeah. You know, yeah. So language has been important. I remember you've had a bit of a a real good shot at Italian and Spanish. Where did the the Spanish come in? I recall you travelling to Spain and sort of having a bit of a profound effect on you at the time. Yeah, I I travelled to Spain. I travelled around South America. I think there's the Latin connection. I think... It's interesting. I've got a comfort with Spanish because I'm not culturally connected to it. I don't care if I stuff Spanish off. I'm just like, yeah, let's play, you know. Uh, Vamos a la playa, you know. Whereas if I speak Italian, I'm a bit more like, actually, this is part of my cultural heritage. I kind of want to get right. And yeah, so travel has helped. Spanish as well, though, a lot of people seem to speak Spanish. And Spanish is fairly easy. I'm learning Italian at the moment and I... Agree with you totally with the – I wish I had – there's always that background noise of I should have done this earlier, why wasn't I taught correctly or why wasn't this a part of my, my makeup growing up and obviously I was sent to Italian lessons and hated it. So it was a little bit of my fault as well as, you know, being a, being a, a child. I remember a little bit about your, your journey maybe through South America, through Spain and, and I remember you commenting on how politically active – people were in these places compared to Australia or at least aware of what was going on. Did that maybe transform you a little bit in your early 20s, late teens? Yeah, it helped me open my eyes. I mean, the first time I really went travelling on a big trip was after I finished my undergraduate studies. And I just finished an arts and teaching degree and was kind of beginning to question whether that's actually what I wanted to do. And then I went travelling for about a year and... I think it's just, for example, Australia is very comfortable. Not every, I'm not under any illusion that everyone lives a comfortable lifestyle, but a baseline level of affluence is quite, quite present. And I think it can lead to some kind of complacency at times and countries that where the conditions are not as, not as abundant, there's a lot more struggle and, um, I don't know, people are just forced to to fight for things more. And then I guess that almost awakens what is happening in Australia in a way too, that it's not at the forefront of everyone's mind but there are struggles going on here. Yeah, yeah. That are quite prevalent. I guess I'm alluding to your first foray. Actually, your first foray prior to the the one I'm about to mention, which I recall was Keep Left, was uh, Culture Underage. I want to hear a little bit about this. This is the workings of you, Paul, that you've always been a go-getter. You've always targeted something and made it happen. That was amazing. We were about, what, year 10? I don't think the listeners want to hear it. No, no, I think so. (laughs) Come on. This I want to bridge your journey (laughs) from from a young age going into 
the person you've developed in, but that there sure, is a, sure. a thread there that I've, I've noticed. Sure. And the thread might seem a bit loose, but it's there. Oh, the brief summary of that was we were, we were our, a few teachers of our school had gotten the idea to go to a thing called World Youth Day, which is a Catholic gathering for youth created by John Paul II, um, Pope John Paul II, and then our teachers decided to take us on a school trip there. But they kind of said, look, it's more or less self-funded, so you might have to do some fundraising efforts to get yourselves over there. And I thought, well, I'm going to run a dance party. I'm going to find a venue and, and we'll put on an underage dance party and get some DJs together. And I remember at the time canvassing a few other people that were going, I'm like, look, do you want to, do you want to join in on this or not? And, and they weren't as keen. And then I kind of organised it and it was a pretty successful night with a whole bunch of teenagers having a dance to some music at an establishment in Carlton and, yeah. I remember it was pretty big though. It was pretty successful. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. What gave you that drive though? I, I mean, at that age, it's, it's quite rare to see someone just take the bull by the horns and just give it a go. I think as I was exposed to that world, like having older brothers and then older friends and then almost always as long as I can remember more or less being interested in electronic music and just the culture around that. Yeah, and I even remember that I've still I've still got like the the promo um, flyer <laughs> for it and it was something like, you know, in Melbourne dancing and music is a culture onto itself or something like that. So, yeah, I called the, called the night culture and it was actually a, a real success financially actually. So it kind of helped me get overseas. Great, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Was that your first trip overseas? Not technically because I'd been to Vanuatu Okay. when I was like 12 with my mom and brother and sister for a little holiday. But it was the first kind of, yeah, trip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's many stories to tell but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll leave that one alone. So that thread goes along to the next thing that I was about to talk about, your next venture post, probably post-uni then, sure. which was Keep Left. Was that the beginning or was there something a little bit before that? Oh, yeah, no. Uh, what did, while I was doing my undergraduate studies at ACU, the, the university was on a drive to become more social. They started, they introduced the idea of having more clubs and societies on campus. And then I thought, well, there's no poetry collective. I was studying literature and creative writing and all this stuff and I thought well there's no poetry collective let's make a poetry club and then that was kind of the first iteration of running some kind of poetry event and that was called Poeticaholics Anonymous no unanimous Poeticaholics Unanimous okay. um, yeah and we did a couple of those um, again that was just for a bit of fun but there wasn't much uptake I think that was my final year of uni and then I kind of left after that. Yeah. So it didn't really get off the ground, so to speak. But we had a few events and then I got more into the actual poetry scene in Melbourne, which is what I was actually really interested in is the actual words. But then part of that journey meant getting more exposed to performance poetry or slam poetry. And I kind of got caught up in that. And part of that was kind of a bit of a persona and I kind of went, travelled, came back and then 
I saw that that was more prevalent and I wasn't actually that comfortable by the end of it. I thought this actually isn't really me. I'm just interested in writing and speaking in my own language because the whole thing that I was observing was this trend for people to perform their poetry in a certain way inspired by American poets and all this kind of stuff. I just thought, well, I'm not an African-American guy. I'm not going to talk like that. Mm. And then I kind of moved away from that scene and then I've kind of gone back in and out but for me I, I care more about the actual words than someone's performance sure performance is beautiful it's wonderful it's a good show but actually now myself I prefer to write and it's more about actually writing and mm. reading it as opposed to getting up on the microphone seeking some kind of fame or or, or sharing it in that way yeah. have you always been interested in writing yeah and and poetry specifically was there something before was there stories was it I like poetry because it's a, it's an it's a distillation of a topic, so you can write a poem in three words, or you know, mm. it's, it's it doesn't have to be a long, long winded thing. I think it's about brevity and about saying more with less. Um, but no, I've always been quite into writing. It, it comes pretty naturally to me, but now I probably just journal and. But not not every single day, but like every yep. now and then if I'm feeling an urge. Yep. Yeah. I've started to journal. I've been trying to journal for a long time and sort of on and off, but I feel it helps massively. Journaling creates a mindfulness that is also there to not just collect your thoughts or, or silence your thoughts in a way, but to put them down and to unpack them and and reflect on them at a later date, which which really does help. Where mindfulness meditation, for example, you may have a thought, you may have a feeling that dissipates and, and that's the point of it in a way but it may not come back whereas mm. the writing you've got that opportunity to look back and reflect. So does journaling have that impact on you at all? Or? No, I never look back on it. I just write it and wow. then it's, even, even if I make artwork or something, a lot of the time it's more of an act of getting it out of my being and then it's kind of gone. Okay. Um, so it's more about shifting emotions and releasing things or, or sometimes just capturing things or having an act of gratitude and yeah, I write more for the process of getting it out, writing and getting it out and just being a bit more automatic about it and not caring too much about how it looks or sounds. Where I'm, what I'm seeing and, and sensing is the ability to put pen to paper and create without the presentation, without the props, without the feedback – did that take a long time to reach? Was there a process that it actually took for you to gain the strength almost or the, or the letting go to of you, what you're proud of or passionate about, putting it onto paper and then saying, I've put that in the world, that's out of me and that's all that matters? Did you move from a point where you were saying earlier that it was about, was it imitating or was it being a part of a scene? Yeah, I think I think it's more about just being and not trying, not trying too hard, just just being okay with what comes out. Whereas in the past, I might have had a more, say, writing a poem. I might be like, no, this has to make logical sense, or this has to follow a particular structure, or there has to be some kind of uh, not rule to it, but following some kind of format. And then now I'm a bit more like whatever. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. not blasé, but just more like, yeah, I'm aware that. There's rules that I could follow, but then there's also I could just make my own. Make your own rules. Make my own. Yeah, more or less. 
you've done that in the way you mentioned you did your arts and teaching degree. So teaching was it a passion of yours? Or was it just something to give a give a go at? Or it was basically arrogance. Like um, it was basically being in high school and thinking I could do a better job than these guys. I actually remember I had a girlfriend when I was in about year nine, and we were talking on the phone one summer holidays, and we were talking about what we want to do when we're older. And she's like, she said, I think I want to be a teacher. And I was like, yeah, I think I might want to be a teacher too. And then I remember that was like a germ of it. A germ of that idea and then kind of remember being at, at high school and some arrogance in me was like I could do a better job than these teachers or so, it was something like that like there was it felt like there was something missing maybe in terms of connecting with the teachers or something and then when I finished school I thought I'm going to become a teacher which is kind of ironic um, not that I was necessarily like a bad student but yeah maybe it was just kind of an interesting career move. But I think what's at the heart of it is wanting to help other people and then at that time it was like, oh, well, I can help other people through being a teacher. Um, and then when I finally finished and got out on the other end and, and gave it a shot, there was almost, I was almost too emotionally invested and I actually I got to see for myself, okay, um, there needs to be a level of kind of self-care that happens if you're a teacher and if you're in that role and there needs to be kind of a healthy healthy separation um, between the students and the teacher and and yeah and by the time I started teaching in a school context public school context I was like 24 which is relatively young and there was a whole lot of other stuff kind of going on in my life and and it was actually really kind of tough and I enjoyed the actual teaching but it was more all the other stuff around the teaching, the bureaucracy and the politics and all that kind of stuff and just the broader systematic stuff that kind of got me out of it. And just also really the main thing, the main thing would have been I just found being a teacher in a school, I couldn't actually be myself. I had mm. to put on it's some an act. kind of, yeah. yeah. Um, and I really cared about the kids. I really cared what was going on in their lives and some of them were going through some pretty full-on stuff and it's like, well, who else are they going to talk to, you know? But then you you might have to tell them to pull their socks up or to wear the right uniform when they might have come home from a traumatic event or something. Is that is that where you sort of that emotional level to connect with these people as humans yet sometimes as... Yeah, yeah, I didn't care anything about that. I couldn't care what the kids are wearing. Who cares? What's that no, you didn't care but yeah, maybe yeah, the school yeah. might have. Is that right? Is yeah, that yeah, where, yeah, the school, the, is that the school what... cared and it was like... And I could see why but I was just like, I don't care if he's got the wrong shoes on. He's probably more comfortable wearing his runners. Yeah. I'd rather have a kid that's comfortable than a kid that's uncomfortable. Or, yeah. or what's that got to do with the learning process or yeah. just this additional adult stuff and it's like just speaks to the way that we... Educate people, yeah. you know, or so supposedly, edu- you know, would you educate people? Um, but just the kind of system of doing that and the other big thing I found in working in schools is it's a career, yeah? So people have got their career ambitions. So the interests of the kids might not always be first and foremost. Yeah. And I could also see if I was going to say in teaching, I probably – would have gotten active in the quite active in the union perhaps, and then at the time I just thought, well, this is all pretty heavy, like for a twenty-four year old. So then I kind of took exited stage left, but that's not to say I would never go back to it. And I have done and do still do work in schools from time to time, mostly with staff now, but sometimes with students, and it's fun and it's good to be able to go in 
run a session with the kids and then go and then I'm yeah. done. You touched on a little bit of a, a tough time around 24 but I remember you growing up through and always going back. So obviously we went to school together, we went to uni together. Yeah, yeah. Um, we probably became friends sort of later high school but always remember seeing you, you, were, you were tough, you had the older siblings, you were – you had this masculinity a little bit that you were a, a leader. You were a bit older brothers, so maybe you had a, a few years under your belt without actually living those years. And a lot of people looked up to you and, and thought that. So you were probably never necessarily able to be vulnerable in that position as leader of a group of young men that were, yeah. you know, looking at their pack leader in a way. And I don't know if you set out to be, I'm going to be the pack leader here, but I'm not, I'm not trying to judge that or anything. I'm just saying what I saw and what I noticed. Did it take a bit of time? You mentioned 24 might have been a tough time and I'm not sure. We'll, we'll maybe get into that. But was there a transition for you to be, become a bit more vulnerable, to be a, become a bit more aware that just maybe going at 100 miles an hour in the role that you have been assigned may not have been for you that you had some little bit of soul searching to have was there a little bit of that in your early 20s i think it even started earlier and i think that's an interesting reflection and i think there's some truth to it and i think there's maybe i remember being in primary school i think part of it speaks to the bigger kind of conditioning and gender roles and and programming and all this kind of stuff i remember being in primary school one time and crying and just one of the kids being like oh my god you're crying like you're like the tough dude or something and then i was just like i just remember being so tortured by that being like well i'm not allowed to cry or what the fuck or do i have some kind of like i'm not allowed to cry because i just remember yeah being like in somewhere in primary school and having that moment and someone just saying like another guy saying that and it wasn't like, oh, you're a pussy, you're crying. But it was almost like the kid was like, oh, my God, do you cry? I cry now. Now I cry regularly. I cry like almost weekly. Like or I've even gone through periods where I'll cry daily and it could be tears of joy or just, you know, I need to release something. But I've done a lot of unpacking and kind of reprogramming to get out. You know, you said kind of tough and then I kind of think, well, yeah, but that toughness could be a projection to the world and perhaps external. It was just yeah, yeah. it's external and I don't actually think I was really that tough. I think it was more just because there was it was a it was a boys' school and then part of the establishing kind of almost hierarchy or whatever. So there was some of that and then no, I'll admit that I've got natural leadership capabilities and happy to kind of step into uh, step into that role. But yeah, I've had to yeah, I think I've become more vulnerable and or not become more vulnerable, become more comfortable with that vulnerability. Yeah. Yep. Um and there's definitely yeah, been if you want to call it soul searching, but basically just recognizing my own behavior and thought patterns and and saying, well, okay, I've got the power to change this stuff. So do I want to keep do I want to maintain this attitude to women that I've had when I was a 15-year-old or is it time for that to shift? Let's shift it. Let's change it. That's not helping me if my in my own interpersonal relationships, mm. things like that. Yeah. So I call it debunking the self. I've had many moments where I've thought you've been conditioned, you've been led, you've been um, taught that certain actions work and, and certain actions don't. 
in in situations that are probably not necessarily the best for your own development as an individual and as a, as a member of a community. So that idea of debunking the self is those those moments where you just epiphanies, those moments where you're like far out. Do I really do that? Am I that person? Do do you see that in me? And that little bit of recognition from yourself because you're always being told what you are. You're always being almost shown what you need to be in and you're in your own head. But I, I've been told on different occasions that, oh, you're a leader, you know, captain this sports team or whatever. And I'm like, I'm a leader, okay. I'll, I'll be a leader. And I think that the fact that I can be a leader but I, I'm not always a leader, it comes from the fact that I won't necessarily jump into that leadership spot until I'm told. So it's still following into that leadership where – does that define me or, or do I really need to go, actually, is is part of my that reprogramming you were talking about, is part of that reprogramming, recognising that and then saying, well, I'm actually comfortable leading but I'm also comfortable being in the presence of a leader and learning from someone and, and maybe using those lessons later in the future. I just feel that we're very unfair on ourselves sometimes but one thing I did want to touch on was I find it almost impossible to cry to this day. I was proud of the fact that I hadn't cried since year 11 or something, you know. And even to this day I've probably cried at funerals and uh, the occasional tear, but I hold them back still. So was there a time that you couldn't cry and then you could? Were you always a cryer? Did you allow yourself to do it? Because as men, and this is part of this unpacking, as men... We're told often, you know, harden up, shape up, bowl the others over, you know, dominate a room or whatever. I don't know. When did it occur to you to... I can remember I can remember a pivotal moment and it was really tender and I was at my ex-partner's father's funeral. Who He was actually Sicilian but that's kind of besides the point. And being at this funeral... And sitting at the edge of the pew, bawling my eyes out. And then as I was crying, a, another guy I know who, who, yeah, you'd probably think he's a bit of a tough character and he's covered in tattoos and he had a, a rat's tail or something like that. And he just consoled me for a moment. I was, I was there boiling my eyes. You know, this was my partner of six-ish years, her father, who I had a bit of a, a grandfather bond with. And he died and I'm there at this funeral. I was just bawling my eyes and this 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 other gentleman, he just – he held me for a moment mm. and it was just – it was really tender and it was really beautiful and it was really like, yeah, this is this is all okay. And, um, yeah, I think – I think just like maybe having a bit of – I've probably had times – I think the crying came – from times where it just felt like it was uncontrollable, where it was just so overwhelmed that that's what needed to happen. And then after a while I just realised, well, that's a f- load of bullshit. Men don't cry, all this kind of ridiculous stuff. We're all human beings. We all experience emotions. This is just um, insecure, insecure, insecure narrative, you know. Mm. How old were you then? Oh, this was kind of around... This was a few years ago now. Um, this was kind of after the teaching. Yeah, so after the teaching. So did we go yeah, back to that. Did you? Yeah, yeah. So, so what, a year or two after the teaching. So with the teaching, you're talking about some tough times. Was it something specific? Was it an internal 
battle was no, it? No, yeah, I was battling my own depression and suicidal ideation and all of these kinds of things and, and feeling a bit lost and uh, basically had just been travelling around the world and, and saw a lot of injustice happening in a lot of different places and then was just totally overwhelmed. This was 2011, 2012. So there was a lot of movements towards grassroots, democratic um, kind of movements. So there was the what was called the Indignados or they called it the M5 in Spain. So that was about kind of an anger about the, the current political process and people started occupying spaces and then that was the, the kind of European and then the, Amer- the American and then Australian, England, Western kind of Anglosphere was the Occupy movement. So they were kind of – all of that was happening at the same time and this was all around about the same time as well. I'd come back from overseas at the end of 2011 and then the Occupy movement was actually on when I got back from overseas and then I got involved in that and I felt like as I'd travelled – my own kind of political beliefs or philosophy were were coming together more so. Almost that trip was almost like an inquiry into that of well, what do I actually believe, where do I stand politically and very much what I was seeing was kind of reflecting what I was doing an inquiry. And so, for example, at one point I was in Peru and – you know, as tourists, you know, whatever, even though I got a, you know, I might have thought I was a backpacker, but hey, I'm a tourist, right? Went to go do a day trip to go see these salt, like these salt pans. Yep. And we're driving on the bus and we get to a small town, the bus stops, we get out and there's uh, indigenous Peruvian people, the Quechua people, they've got a roadblock. So our bus couldn't get through and we're like, what's going on? What's going on here? And... They've said, well, look, they're protesting because the government's going to start charging them to use the school bus. The school bus was always free and now the government's going to charge them and they're, they're peasants, they're farmers. They're not going to be able to pay for their kids to get on the bus so then their kids aren't going to be able to go to school. So just seeing things like that and and being like, whoa, the world's pretty unjust and yeah, there was quite a few things like that. I even went to Cuba as well in the same trip and it was just um, – went to a cigar factory and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the conditions were really bad but I was just questioning them a lot. I'm like, but hold on, if you're socialist, if you're – this is supposed to be worker run, who's actually making the decisions and is this all state sanctioned and no one wants to say anything wrong because you're going to piss off Castro and all this kind of of stuff and just seeing like in Cuba, for example, oh, yeah, they've had a so-called socialist revolution but the people aren't free. It's just a monopoly of state power over everything. So seeing all of these things and that was almost more of an educa- a political education than reading a book. Um, but then when I did come back from that trip, more or less got involved in Occupy Melbourne, realised that I was more towards the anarchist end of things, meaning non-hierarchical ways of organising and then got more involved in groups with a similar affinity around those kinds of ideas that journey that you had in latin america in spain on your trips away was it a complete shift of your own perspective of the way you view life in general or did did it just make you aware of 
a political element of the world that you possibly hadn't been looking or, or did it really affect you to the core of who you are and what your job is or what your role is? Yeah, it kind of made me depressed. Or it, on one hand, it made me depressed and on, one, on the other hand, it made me like really fired up and passionate. And Egypt was another place I went to. That yep. was the same year that they uh, – the Arab Spring and um, – they got rid of Mubarak. Yeah, what a time. And, and yeah, we. I mean, I, I was there afterwards, but you could see the buildings that had been kind of blown up and there were still strikes in the street yep. and stuff like that. And it was more – and there was also some other there – was, there, was, there was a few other things going on in the world at that time. It was all kind of post-financial crisis, people feeling all of that stuff. I think it more – part of it was my own inability to filter out – well, it's basically the trauma of the world and I was kind of feeling the trauma and then not necessarily looking after myself, mm. I guess. So you took it in, you you actually felt it yeah. on, a, on a personal level right to your core rather than view it. I mean, it's probably better to have felt it and actually really let it sink in than to see it and go, these Indigenous people are blocking my little holiday, yeah, my day. Right. I mean, someone would right. probably – so it's better right. in that way but – yeah, but just that idea of taking it on board because one of the reasons I'm creating this podcast in this space on a personal level, obviously it's there to have great conversations hopefully and, and share them with people. But my own journey is wrought with that trying to understand my outrage, sure. my my hatred of the world at times and then also my love of it mm. and and – Often the outrage comes from how can we treat humanity or an environmental space or privileges that we may have? How can we treat certain people and, and places so poorly and then cry in a movie about an individual that's fake or a celebrity death or... Um, you walk down in, in nature and, and post about how beautiful it is, yet you haven't really thought about the litter that you're producing or, or the way you're going about life. You're still not connecting the dots. Mm. And and my, my sometimes my torment comes from the fact that I'm connecting the dots and I realise how great I do have a, a great life and all the things that I have. I tick the boxes and I say, fantastic, but... Why am I then so caught up in this world that's external to me? Should I just bathe in the sorrow and grief and, and just let it bring me down? Or is my role to acknowledge it, to understand it and then see what little differences and little seeds I can plant to maybe try to help myself make a difference but also help others maybe consider the difference they can make too? That's the battle I go through. Did you have those sort of thoughts and ideas at the time or, or did you just sort of wallow in that grief and that was for at least the little... Uh, the yeah, no, it was more... At the time it was probably more wallowing or it was more... No, it was more... I was a bit ill-equipped to, to deal with that or or to... Um, look, part of it was maybe the manhood stuff and being like, I'm going to suck this out and go it alone and... And then kind of find ways of coping with it, which I kind of did. It was also like linking ideas of self-work to work and employment and income generation and all of this kind of stuff. That was kind of what was going on. I think what helps is you said connecting the dots and I think where I'm at now is 
yes, connecting the dots, but I feel like we have to connect to the dot, right? And mm. what I mean by that is you might watch a movie and cry for that character because there's been some kind of connection established with that character. So if I go camping for a weekend and I'm sleeping on the earth, walking on the earth, feeling that connection to the earth, I might think twice about throwing rubbish out because I've got an actual connection. Whereas someone who's maybe not maintaining that connection to whatever the topic is, it's basically we don't care. What the hell do I care what happens to someone in Syria? They don't mean anything to me but it's, everything's all connected. So, But it's we can't blame people for not caring about something that doesn't affect the day-to-day life but the external world, everything's interconnected. We can't, as much as we think we can, as much as I think I can, hide away in my little flat, close the blinds, get away from the world. There's still the traffic, there's still my neighbours, there's still the water pipes, there's everything, there's birds. So we can't really run away from anything and I think maybe that's what I was trying to do. Part of my attention at the time was I had been travelling for nine months and then it felt like the depression and anxiety started to come in the, the, a month or two before I went home because I wanted to keep travelling. But the gift out of all this was was being able to feel in my body, what does it feel like to be anxious? Oh, my God, why is my heart rating? Why is my heart, you know, heartbeat? And then realising that and being like, okay, maybe I need to take a moment and breathe or noticing I'm depressed and there's self-talk going on and being like, okay, maybe there's some negative patterns happening here. You know, what's another way I can reframe the way I'm looking at the world? And, you know, I've gone through... Periods, of course, the whole world's fucked. Yeah, I can say that. I can take that perspective or I can say the whole world's beautiful, you know. And in in some ways the mind, yeah, the mind is powerful and the mind's a good way to to access concepts. But I've found that perhaps during those travels maybe it was mental but maybe it was more emotional. It was more connecting me to my heart and seeing people like, yeah, these people are really pissed off and they're going to do something about it. Where's this fire in Australia? You know, And it, it exists, it absolutely exists without a doubt. So, yeah, I think it's about connecting to the issues and then we kind of, I guess we get affected by what we're connected to. It's like if your football team loses, you know, you 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 could have an emotional response to that. For someone who's not into football, they don't care, whatever, but then they care about a tree getting cut down at the park. You touched on earlier, Paul, that family's massive for you, language, ethnicity, heritage connection has religion found its way in there at all yeah absolutely um yeah religion and spirituality and yeah look i grew up catholic i mean as growing up italian or italian australian catholics more or less the default and so yeah grew up grew up going to church going to catholic schools even went to Catholic University, even though it wasn't overtly religious. Um, but yeah, that that whole area of life has has featured in, in in some way or another. So from either yeah, growing up, not that my parents were very strict with re- religion necessarily, um, or with anything really, 
it was more later on in life. It was there was more the when I was kind of inquiring more to my own political beliefs and philosophical beliefs than God and religion and the cosmos and all of this kind of stuff came into scope as well. And then so where I've kind of been over the last, I, I more or less went, it more or less went like this: grew up Catholic, then questioned that, rejected that, went against that, basically renounced that. Catholicism as a religion or God? Uh, there was a few things going on. One, on one hand, there was part of the kind of useful, youthful angst and rejection of what we've inherited from our parents and our families and, and a, ba- a backlash against that. And then the idea of what is God and then part of inquiry into what would a world look like without hierarchy and that kind of a conclusion of that is, well, what does the universe look like without some kind of hierarchy? So therefore if I want a society without hierarchy then maybe my spiritual belief system might reflect that so that's where i was in the past but then getting more into eastern traditions like yoga buddhism and beginning to see and more inquiries a bit more recently into things like islam and then coming back to realize the threads within all of these religions how there's a, a universality in a lot of them and then seeing how they either play out in my life and also getting more exposed to Indigenous Australian, I guess, cosmologies for want of a, a better word. I guess now for me God, the, the idea of God is it's, in our, it's our nature, it's our planet, it's you and me, it's, it's everything. We're all God. It's not a separate entity. I can't necessarily say whether, you know, I'm going to say, like I don't want to talk about the Big Bang or any of this kind of stuff, but just more my day-to-day living, feeling, understanding is that it's all connected. We're all God. The whole planet is, you know. So then almost that worship or that, I guess, defending of God is okay because it is us, it is everything, it is the the very way that we survive but it's also all the beauty that comes within that is that is it worth protecting the word god would it be a sad moment for you for the word god or religions to disappear and for everyone to jump on board with we're all god or do you like the idea of um different stories when you were looking into islam and christianity and eastern philosophies do you is there a lot to learn I think the language, the language on one hand is really important and really loaded and has a lot of cultural baggage and then on the other hand I actually don't care whatever a tree, it's the Shakespearean thing, a rose is a rose by any other name. The tree, the word tree is not important, the actual tree is important. Mm. So I don't, I care less about the actual languaging around it because that's where a lot of the confusion comes, that's where the mental thing comes. You know, for example, you could go to the football and watch your football team win and feel so elated. That could be connecting with divinity and the divine and do you necessarily have to have an intellectual debate into what you're feeling or what that is or where it comes from? I'm more interested in that actual feeling and that experience because for me that feeling and that experience is what 
drives me to make changes. I can have an intellectual concept and go, oh, yeah, I get that. Or I can feel something and go, fuck, this is really full on. Maybe I need to help this situation or get out of the way or whatever the case may be. It's more about the feeling. Uh, uh, that's very it's more interesting. about the, vi- that's, the vibe that's of the, vibe. the thing. <laughs> Can't beat a little bit of the castle every now and then. Castle or castle for you? I would have said the castle. Yeah, I've changed. I used to say castle. <laughs> a man's home. What does Daryl Kerrigan say? A man's home is his castle. His castle. Maybe he says castle, yeah. Maybe it is the castle. Something to ponder. Yeah. You did touch on the feeling being the vibe, the feeling being more important to you. I struggle with that concept in a way because I feel that feelings have got us into a lot of dangerous territories. The mob, the the feeling of the fervour that the French Revolution might have had or the uh, ISIS feel or that people feel when they buy a new – when they're running through – Black Friday sales, that they're all feelings to me and without intellectualising those feelings to check yourself, to, to give yourself a little bit of a, a check and balance to your, to your own life can sometimes be harmful yet I'm being more and more drawn towards the feelings, the good feelings that matter. But then I, I, I really do struggle intellectually with the idea that a good feeling is just that. It's a, it's a good feeling to me to the people I want to surround myself with. But there are people down the road that might be arming themselves for a race war because of feelings. There might be some people down the road that are about to shoot up a school in, in, in the US or even little things like stuff the world I'm going to – I don't feel good about this climate debate. I'm going to ensure that I'm really fighting for – Australia to stay in coal or to stay in in the fossil fuel industry, not because of the economic reasons, just because I'm too scared of the opposite Mm. side. So when people feel something, there's danger there that I'm always wary of, yet there's also a lot of danger in the intellectual too. So Mm. what what are your feelings and thoughts towards the battle sometimes, or is it a battle, but I feel a battle between intellect and emotion? Mm. Yeah, I take your point about people doing things based on emotion and not perhaps not perhaps checking it. Look, for me, the way I perceive it is that they're faculties that us human beings have. So we have an we have an ability to make sense of things through a mental capacity. We have the faculty of feeling things. You know, we can all feel love or hate, um, and I feel like. It's not necessarily a hierarchy or a battle. It's just more different parts of our being um, are receptive to different different media coming in, so to speak. It's more about drawing on these faculties when they're needed, you know. And and sometimes, you know, sometimes we, we that raw emotion can play a really good good part in things. Like if you know, if I had to defend my house, then, you know, if there's a whole lot of adrenaline pushing through my body and, and getting me to defend my house from whatever it is, maybe it's a bushfire, maybe it's a, a whatever, an invasion or something, then that emotion could be good. I think the main thing is is when it's all subconscious. If it's subconscious stuff that we're acting out and we're not taking the time to realise, hold on, where did this come from? Is this because that kid stole the toy car from me when we were in kindergarten? 
you know, is this like something that happened to me 20 years ago that I'm still holding on to and acting out this pattern? So I think it's about making things more explicit about what we're actually experiencing. Would you call that paying attention? Yeah, absolutely paying attention and, and being being connected in to what's happening within me, whether it's a thought or a feeling or some impulse. Yeah. Yeah, you said earlier, you know, camping and feeling connected to the to the ground, feeling connected to nature, feeling that connection. That's a feeling. There's nothing intellectual necessarily about mm. that. And that's so beautiful. You've, you're just walking and you are truly in that spot. You're not thinking, oh, my God, someone's coming here and they're going to knock this down. I'm going to kill them, you know, as I'm coming. You're just really embracing nature for what it is. And that's being potentially cold and getting rained on and yeah. some bird shitting on you as it fly by. Yeah, or the is waking that's, that's us up at six in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or we walked outside earlier and I've just been bitten by mosquitoes. Is that mm. – do I walk out there and say, I hate going outside, you know, my body – is itchy, I'm, I'm sick of it, or do I go, do you know what, that was a lovely little, you know, look out into the park and, and feeling at one with nature for just five minutes really does mm. fix your day. So feelings as a faculty, do you think that maybe there's a requirement for some serious education in critical thinking and mm. being able to understand all that media that you talked about all that information that's Mm -hmm. constantly hitting us if we're able to think through think of it critically think of where it fits in who's who's trying to persuade me here because most things in life are someone persuading us in some way or another a western sort of system is a as an ad i feel if that is flying towards us and we're just grasping oh my god coronavirus let's start yelling at chinese people Oh my God, Islamic extremism. Let's go and rip off people's uh, traditional clothing or, or whatever it might be. That feeling is toxic and horrible, but with a little bit of critical thinking and judgment that the intellect starts to, to bring in, then we can feel deep connection. Intellect alone won't change our world, won't create a better place, but intellect will help solidify and and be a foundation for our feelings to be really just and worthwhile and and the ability to trust our feelings using that word the faculty and and the way that you explain that will help me explore that further because it's 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 really a big challenge for me and when you talked about feeling without the intellect that allows you to maybe cry i'm going to experience the tears whereas i'm intellectualizing that a little bit perhaps i'm thinking you know, what is that person going to think of me or what am I going to think? If I start crying now, will I just start doing that forever? And intellectually I can say that there's nothing wrong with that but the feelings still overcome that uh, intellectually when we're feeling downtrodden or depressed. We can tell ourselves it's in your mind but you don't feel better until you start feeling better. There is a lot to say about the, the distinction between intellect and feelings from what we've just discussed um, way more present than we we might give credit to. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the body's the greatest faculty, and and I mean I would I would posit that the body and the mind are almost they are the same organism, the same being. We can draw a distinction between you know our mental capacity and physical capacity, but our body's constantly giving us feedback, you know, and it's like where is our where is my mind? Is it in my head or is it my body or is it 
Is it out somewhere? Is it my eyes? Where what's mm. where do we draw the line? Do we even need to draw a line? Have you explored much of that distinction and maybe through meditation, through other factors at all, or through psychedelics? How have you Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um meditation, psychedelics, yep. Um through movement, through yeah, writing. Yeah, whole ra- and I mean, look, psychedelics is a good one because psychedelics can be, on one hand, very life affirming, and then on the other hand, a bit uh, scary and volatile and unpredictable. And 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 how does one, how do I hold myself in that moment where it feels like my mind is going to a very dark place? Um, how can I? limit that from happening and what i found in my own experience is just feel my body feel what's happening in my body is my body actually fearful is there am i actually in danger right now no okay i'm not is that a mental confabulation yeah it might be all right so what's real in this moment well me sitting here on this chair my feet on the carpet my breathing oh that's real the demon in my mind, that's not there. All right, but it's there. Say hello to the demon in the mind. Hi, how are you going? Have fun trying to kill me. Good luck with that. Um, so, yeah, I definitely have yeah, explored that and especially in relating as well, you know, perhaps some, some friendships or partnerships or, or connections, uh, either I've been more intellectual or the other person's been more intellectual and then trying to find a space where how could we be more emotionally? How can we relate more emotionally? Um, one thing I've been observing lately specifically with my relationship with other men is sometimes be sitting around talking. There's a whole lot of talk and, and, and you know, some of the men are talking about their theory of the world and what's going on here, there and other where. And after a while, I just go, I don't give a shit. I don't fucking care what you think happened in to JFK. What what happened to you yesterday? Mm. Like, what's happening to you now? What are your needs? Like, what are you what are you craving in your life at the moment? That's more important than than who you think shot JFK. It's like let's talk about the real stuff. I think a lot of the time, men especially think they're being more not only intellectual but more real by talking about world events or global theories and, and politics or things in the external that they're really avoiding. Mm. Like uh, instead of gossiping or talking about what happened yeah, at work, yeah, which yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily want to do either. Mm. And sometimes I've taken the step that, you know, I'll talk about this philosophy instead of my day at work like it's a better thing. But I'm still not touching on who I am, mm. on what I stand for and what's hurting me or, or what's holding me back. When did you start to really unpack yourself completely? Because I know you have. I know that mm. the person that sits here in front of me is different from oh, many iterations of Paul, but we've all done that. You know, we yeah, all yeah, grow yeah, and, yeah, and change yeah, and develop. Yeah. <clears throat> was there a moment, was it an unpacking of the mind where you realise I've got to be really attentive to what I need did that happen at some point? Yeah, yeah. I think it was still going off the deep end mentally and feeling like I wanted to kill myself. So then it was like, shit, do I really want to kill? Do I really want to jump mm. off the balcony and fucking die? Fuck, maybe there's something I could do. I think it's about having tools and techniques and 
So for me, one of the big things that got me through, say, that that rough rough patch was was moving and getting into meditation and, and going and doing yoga or going for a swim at the pool and just doing something that I guess took me out of just myself and more into connection with the world around me, other people around me. I kind of feel like I've always been quite reflective and having older brothers and sisters and and watching their lives unfold and then often thinking, well, do I want to do that in my life? And then being like, no, maybe I don't. Maybe I don't want to take that pathway. Maybe I'll take another pathway. And just kind of on one hand, you mentioned before the critical thinking and I think I definitely have a tendency towards that and maybe in the past I might have done that too much but sometimes it's actually been helpful and actually critiquing I try and critique the things I'm most interested or invested in um, and holding those those things up to scrutiny. You know, my mum's quite spiritual and then she she's always told me, you know, it's, it's great when people question my faith because then I either have to do the work of looking into it a bit deeper and, and seeing, well, how, form, how well formed is this belief and how useful is this in my life or I go... They're right. It's a load of bullshit. How interesting is that? I never thought about that. This thing I've been believing for a while, it's kind of bullshit. Maybe it's time for a new belief. Is that the scariest thing that someone can sort of take? I I feel that as people get older, the generations, we start to look back at generations, that that ability to change, that ability to admit that I may have been living a life that, may not have really been one that I wanted to, but even that I didn't know that there was another thing possible. I'm going to stick this out because I've done this for 40, 50, 60 years. I'm going to continue believing the exact same thing as I was taught when I was 10 because it's too difficult for me to realise I may need to unpack and, and really dig deep, start at the bottom again and rebuild. That's, that's terrifying to some people. Mm, mm. But there's also another approach. It's like if you're – you could either be really thirsty and not drink water for the whole day and then get home and then drink a whole bottle of water or you could have a water bottle with you throughout the day and just take sips throughout the day to stop you from getting thirsty. So I think where I'm at is – and it maybe might sound exhausting but it's like literally every single moment in my life – what the fuck am I doing? Mm. What, what am I doing right now? Why am I doing this? Is this giving me joy? Is this – what's the purpose of doing this thing? Why am I thinking this? So questioning everything but not questioning so much that you go crazy and doubt everything. But just more of questioning in terms of what I need in each moment or basically just having the, the idea that I'm responsible for my life. I'm totally responsible for my life. Yep. And, and, and coming from a place of that and I'm responsible for me and if I'm responsible for me, I can look after me first and then I can help you. But if I'm not helping myself, then I'm going to be a, a mess and want to kill myself and then I'm probably gone and then how am I going to help humanity? But it comes back to the help humanity, doesn't it? The, the teacher, the giver, the person that thinks about the other, the, that sense of injustice. It's come back to that without you even meaning it. I've just noticed that. What drives you to have humanity at the forefront of decisions 
not saying that it's only humanity because you mm, did touch mm, on mm, yourself mm. first. You've yeah, got to be yeah. a really strong person, real strength, not yeah, yeah. perceived strength. Yeah, yeah. So a strong person that's able to ask questions and say, no, not today. Mm. This isn't really what interests me right now. Not If it's important to you, yeah, I'll, I've got the strength to understand that you need this, but do I need to carry on fabricating the rest of this day and, and sitting in my little uh, donut in the pool taking me wherever it goes or yeah. will I get my oars out and start actually directing this, realising that it's pretty easy. Once you start and, as you say, constant decision-making, you're taking a pathway you want rather than just falling into a place and saying, I've run the rat race for 20 years and I'm, I've got everything I've been told I need to have and yeah, I, I'm, I'm not happy yeah, with yeah. that. Yeah, and I think... Not doing the work of improving oneself in the end, it'll be worse, I would imagine. that Because it's more, I think we've all got traumas in our lives and things that have happened to us and that will happen to us. And it's do we let those things run our lives? You know, do, do I let something that happened to me 10 years ago, is that kind of sitting in the driver's seat? Or, or am I... Me, the the me on the inside, am I making the decision and am I aware? And I think it takes a bit of courage to do those things and, yeah, the humanitarian, I think I've, during my 20s, so kind of the last decade, I think I definitely tried on a few different labels in my life and I'm probably going to a point now where I care less about labels but the one label that I'd be willing to, to put on is humanitarian I think that's the inroad for me for the suffering because it's like, okay, well, I understand human suffering because I'm a human. So then maybe that could be a gateway into suffering of other beings. So it's not to say that humans are any more important. We're all in an ecosystem. But obviously I'm human so I'm experiencing it from, from where I am. So that's why I think the human – because we know better. Humans know better. We know better. We can know better and we can do better and we can be better and we can question the systems that have been created to keep people profiting and other people enslaved and we can invent new things and we have the potential and we also have the responsibility to do better. You know, there's no reason why we can't look after the environment. Why can't we? We can do anything. We, we can – the technology we've got – we can, but are we willing to? So the, the willingness is probably another faculty. So I mentioned before about the faculties and the reason why I look at it like that because if you look at a lot of Eastern traditions, so yoga, for example, in the yoga system, they say there's seven chakras, which means a wheel of energy, okay? Now, I've inquired into all this stuff. Now, I don't know if I believe whether there's a wheel of energy around my pelvis and genitalia, around my navel, around my heart, whatever, right? So to me, that's not that useful to think, oh, there's energy throwing in through my navel chakra. For me, it makes more meaning to think, oh, when my confidence is down, I can sometimes feel a bit of a, an impulse around where my solar plexus is below my ribs and I'm feeling a bit, I'm not feeling confident, I'm a bit hunched over and then it's like, oh, that's in the yoga tradition related to willpower and power, maybe if I open my body up a little bit more, maybe if I lift my chest a little bit more and open that area up and try and access 
the faculty of willpower, will that make a difference? Maybe it will make it, maybe it won't. So the faculties thing is my translation of almost an esoteric, esoteric concept about energy that we can't see and putting that into packaging that makes sense to me of, oh, well, I've got a heart. Do I need to necessarily think about some imaginary vortex with this energy going in there? Or could I think about, well, I had a dog when I was 12. I loved him. Oh, and I felt that around my chest. Maybe that's what it is. So, again, relying on these different faculties that we, we, we all human beings have, you know, communication is another one, the throat, the ears, that, that being able to communicate, express ideas. So I kind of look at things in that way um, as all the – I guess intelligences is another word, you know, because, for example, you might get a feeling in your gut about someone, you know, and, and on a scientific level that's probably the microbiome in your stomach. There's something going in there. There's a signal being sent to your brain. You're perceiving information. You say, I don't like this guy. I don't like it. There's something about this guy. I'm not sure about him in this moment, right? He's probably a nice guy, but you're just not sure. And maybe you get an impulse in your stomach to, oh, maybe I'm going to cross the street. So, again, being connected to the different intelligences that we all have. And as human beings, we can only really talk about them because that's what we're, we can experience. Do you think there's a big gap between most people's thoughts and their body do you think a lot of people are lacking an intelligence to correctly identify feelings that are going on in the body and how that relates to mind do you yeah think? correct because even look at food for example in australia we live in melbourne there's an abundance of food there's 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 food waste there's food that needs to be rescued so we've got we're surrounded by food everywhere i'm surrounded by food everywhere so how the hell do i know when i'm hungry because I could eat 24-7. Mm. So then how do I actually stop and go, well, is my stomach actually hungry? Do I need breakfast now or is that because Mr. Kellogg said I have to have it? Maybe I'm not hungry now. Maybe I'll wait a little bit. I think a lot of these – I think we can get confused. The world we live in, this Western, you know, urban – I can only speak from my own opinion, urban kind of world, it's bombarding. Mm. What the hell do I know what I want to do next? Do I want to buy a Coke or a Mercedes-Benz? Like, what the hell, you know? Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's about practising practicing listening to the body and it's so cliché, listen to your body. What the hell does that even mean? When do I even do that? How can I do that if I'm a computer programmer and I'm coding all day? When am I going to listen to my body? Well, maybe I need to make time to do that. So, yeah, I think our ability is... I think we all have the ability but it's whether we access that and whether we make the time for it and, you know, I went camping on the weekend and there was a group, you know, I was with a few friends and then there was a few people that came who we didn't know and their intention was clearly go out to the bush, get a bit drunk, make a bit of noise, have a bit of a, a laugh and a dance and a sing. Good on them. But the end of that was they left their campsite and there's a bit of rubbish left over there. Now... Are they idiots? How can I say they're idiots? They could be very high-functioning people contributing to our society in a really, you know, top-level job. I don't know. They might not be an idiot. 
Do they have the capacity to clean after themselves a little bit better? Yeah, I think they could. Maybe it just needs a bit more practice. Maybe it needs someone to say to them, hey, look, maybe you should think about not leaving anything before you go. And But I think it's too easy and lazy to write people off and say, well, he's an idiot. He doesn't have the ability to to do this or do that. I think we've all got the ability ability in our own way to improve who we are. If you believe that you have control over yourself, you then will believe that you have an impact that you alone are, I guess, the authority of. You alone are contributing to the destruction or the, 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 the litter in our forest because... If, if someone's gone out into the bush and has littered and without thinking anything of it, most likely they are just unaware of the power that they have. Yeah. That, that, that they have. Yeah. And that comes from that paying attention, that impact. If you're constantly being bombarded by things and just, yeah, grabbing a can of Coke, I need to buy that Mercedes, I'm going to do this job, I'm going to do whatever I'm being told without ever thinking and without ever really reflecting on what makes you happy and what connections need to be made for you to be your authentic self, for you to be your someone that, and I say this quite often, it's going to be the, the, the motif, aligning your values with your actions. They might be yelling on social media the next day about why Adani's opening potentially yet they've just left lit up because they were feeling a bit drunk they had a bit of fun it doesn't matter my impact doesn't matter but it does you've started aligning your values and your actual actions through the work that you do and it does touch on movement so what is it that brought you into the world of movement how do you try to live your life and how do you try to impact the day and be that little circuit breaker for other people often. Yeah, so what I – I teach mindful movement, so that's not a product. It's more of a description. And it's about practising mindfulness mainly through movement but also through stillness and drawing on different traditions and practices from, yeah, from yoga – from Pilates, from Qigong, from fitness stuff, boxing, a whole range of different modalities, animal movement stuff. And then using the movement as a way to practice being in the moment and paying attention. So, for example, you know, I could do an exercise where I'm rotating my left arm back, rotating through my shoulder joint, taking a moment to feel how that feels in my left shoulder. Okay, how does that feel without kind of, without judging too much? And then taking that over to my right shoulder, doing the same thing. Oh, that feels a little bit different. It doesn't crunch as much when I go back. Okay, that's interesting. So that's kind of what we're what we're what we're doing in mindful movement. So for me, I'm a I'm giving people time in their day to do that, to actually stop, to listen, to feel what's happening. Hey, maybe my right leg's a bit stronger than my left leg. What's going on there? Maybe I need to do some more work on my left leg. Oh, maybe my breathing's really short. All right, maybe I need to take a moment just to breathe a little bit deeper. So pairing things back to fundamentals. We're human beings. We all need to move. We weren't. We didn't evolve to sit in a chair for eight hours a day. We've got joints. We've got a spine. We need to be moving. So 
for me, that's a fundamental thing that we need to do. And then also because we have the mental capacity, we need to use our consciousness to be aware of what's happening to us internally and what's happening around us outside of us. Okay, there's, there's cars driving past. We're doing some movement in the park. Do I get pissed off when the car drives past? Do I run out onto the road and say, stop driving? We're trying to do a yoga session? No. We let the cars drive past. We hear the car. Okay, the car's there. Do I have any control over the car? No. Just let it be there in the background. All right, I'll focus in on myself. So that's more or less what I'm doing and helping people to cultivate these kinds of skills. Who are the types of people you'd work with most? Are they people that may not have the opportunity to do this often at all? People in the city or in a workplace that doesn't allow movement then? Yeah, look, over the years I've taught a whole range of people. So, you know, my I, I've, I like to feel that I've got a, an ability to, broad, to engage with a broad demographic. So I've done stuff with school kids, to people in, nur- in aged care facilities, nursing homes, people who work in corporate offices, people who work in factories, school teachers, a whole range, baby boomers, fit people. Um, so it can be really anyone. It doesn't really matter really more or less. But in my business at the moment, it's more I've, I've evolved my business more towards workplace and staff wellbeing and, and trying to approach things at the organisational level as opposed to just individuals. So more of a collective, a collective approach geared towards changing the culture of an organisation around health and wellbeing. How does that make you feel? I love it. I love my job. It's what it's literally what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's literally what gets me up and going and you know, it's on one hand it is my mission and purpose in life, but then also I've done some work to detach around from that because at one point there was a part of me that thought, "Oh my god, this is the sum total of my existence and this is all that I am," which is not true. So now I'm much more comfortable to kind of put my career or business in a little, you know, in the corner, put it away in this little shoebox and then when I have to put energy into it, I do. But now emotionally I'm much more at a place where my job doesn't necessarily define who I am. But if you're going to spend a certain amount of time all day every day, it may as well be something you love. Yeah, and look, what really led me through all of this was my own health battles. I mean, mentally, all right, dealing with... Levels of depression and anxiety and also emotional eating, binge eating, body image issues, all of this stuff. So, you know, as a teenager I was introduced to, to bodybuilding pretty early and did, did, you know, amateur bodybuilding, not competing or anything like that. But really moving the body, yeah, in a gym, which was what I had access to and what my kind of exposure had, had driven me to, as well as playing sport and that but just a whole host of body image issues and then all of this, all of these things really coalesce to the point where it's like, all right, well, I've got a teaching background. This, what this, The job that I'm doing, I'm still teaching people but now I'm not restricted to the school system. I can teach who I want, when I want, more or less. Um, but it was more informed and still is every day by my own issues with mental health and just general general health. So... For me, it, it, it helps to keep me healthy doing the job that I'm doing and also 
trying and testing the techniques that I'm teaching because it's like, all right, if this if this technique's in a yoga a yoga text from 200, 2,000 years ago, whenever it is, is this relevant now, you know, to John who's working in the office as a manager who, you know, what, how the hell is this going to help him? So let's try. Let's see if this thing works. Can we improve his breathing through this technique that the yogis said? Maybe, maybe not. All right, doesn't work. Let's find something else. How does music play a part in your life? I know that festivals, music, you've always liked a, a whole range of music, but early on, you, even with uh, your first foray into event management, electronic music meant something. So how does music play a part in your life? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say nothing short of being obsessed with music. I, I grew up, no one in my family necessarily plays a musical instrument. Growing up, having older brothers and sisters who are always playing music and, and, you know, my older brothers and sisters being, some of them being quite, you know, my older sister's 12 years older than me. So, you know, by the time I was kind of a child, my, some of my brothers and sisters were into into adolescence and teenagehood and then then adulthood. So getting a lot of exposure to music. For me it's about mood and it's about feeling. I care less about, you know, I don't care who Bob Dylan is. I don't give a, I don't give a damn what he does on a Tuesday morning. But I might like some of his songs, you know. I might, I might not even like his song but I might feel like this is a good moment to – to put this song on. Um, so for me it's more about feeling and, again, probably an emotional connection to music. A big part of music for me is about movement and getting going and getting some enthusiasm and, um, yeah, gathering momentum. And now, yeah, I've always, yeah, I had exposure to electronic music fairly young and, Culturally, I seem to be more. That's much more in in the Australian context and in terms of the communities that I've been involved with and want to be involved with. There seems to be in some areas and some not definitely because there's definitely a lot of drug taking involved in electronic music scene and definitely a lot of politics and bullshit and all the rest of it. But there's definitely some really rich intersections between electronic music festivals and the whole suite of issues, the environment, spirituality, politics. Um, so for me it seems like that's more – and I'm not saying that it's not it's not present in the live music scene, for example, because it, it obviously is, but for me the kind of – it's not it's not the defining – it's not – I'm not that attached to it or that obsessed with going to festivals. I'd more be interested in going to more of a grassroots festival that's not driven by just making profit and bringing artists out. But I feel like festivals, whether they're electronic music festivals or not, they're really good grounds for unpacking some of the conditioning – some of my own conditioning and just reprogramming a little bit and getting exposure to different people and music can be a really good conduit and and connector and I love dancing I love moving and being creative and and being a a full-time movement practitioner where I'm often teaching something that can be quite structured 
being able to go out dancing on the weekend and just move my body however the hell I want in a way that doesn't make any sense is really liberating. So many people go out to festivals or go out on a Saturday night, dance, love it. It's incredible but they have to do so with either drugs or alcohol. Mm. Is that a another issue that we have with this identity or this vulnerability that people aren't able to shed their shed their external identity without the help of drugs and alcohol in the festival scene oftentimes you talk to someone at the best time of their life most amazing liberating life-changing experiences it's not the paddock necessarily that's made you feel that way it's not the even the people you might see these people in a work context and it means nothing it's the fact that you've let go the fact that you're paying attention mm. on your movement on the beat, on the conversation, mm. on the, the smell of grass or the, mm. the pizza that you're eating or the, the cow that you're looking at across the paddock and just looking in its eyes from far distance because you've taken some serious acid. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it might be. But yeah, yeah. that is the most incredible moment and then you take that away and you, oh, I'll wait for next year to experience that. Mm. How can you bring... Those experiences into your everyday life. Yeah, I think it's there's something maybe it makes me think of this idea of like a peak state in life or like a moment of ecstasy and 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 you know drugs can definitely help to get us there. Environment, people. Um, well, I think if someone's wishing to kind of bring that into their everyday life, then it could be about trying to cultivate moments to do that, and you know, because dancing, for example, can really free up a lot of things. So then sometimes, you know, I'll dance while I'm driving the car, like just in whatever way and, and try and create that moment, connecting back in with that kind of that experience. I think drugs and alcohol can be helpful to a point. It, it's definitely, I've definitely felt, you know, these moments of ecstasy, peak states of, of not having any, not taking anything, just drinking water and... I think sometimes the conditions, yeah, the conditions and the people, the conditions we're in, the people around us, they're all, they can be really influencing factors in in our experiences. I think the problem with drugs and alcohol is when people begin to use them to self-medicate mm. and it becomes more about drug abuse and not drug use. That's when it can start to get harmful and if we're not underlying addressing the underlying issues... That's when it can spiral out of control. If there's unaddressed trauma, then that's when things um, can get out of hand. Often people end up going out to take drugs rather than the other way around that I'm going to liberate myself. I'm free either way but obviously we're not advocating drug use necessarily but the ability to to be safe within Mm. the world of drugs can be an amazing experience and be something just to give that extra edge or that Hmm. uh, shift in perspective that you can take in your everyday life. Because I know that my use of mushrooms early on completely shifted the way I Mm. view the world and without doing psychedelics at different times when I'm really in my own head and it was almost – it is that circuit breaker to Mm. not rely on, never been one to go, I need this every week or this is the only way I can feel happy. It's almost like my life's actually – I've got the ability now to connect with people deeply. I've got the ability to Mm. take myself out of 
the stressful environment or out of a toxic relationship or out of my own thoughts. Yeah, so dance, movement, the ability to recognise that you're staying still for a long time. A lot of people have the Fitbit that buzzes every hour and wouldn't know, oh, it's been an hour, I thought it was 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And you need, some people need that, but eventually mm. you want to be able to feel your body enough where that is a natural moment where you go, you know what, I've got to put my head up, my, my shoulders back, sure, you know, sure. feel that. And then you just feel better every moment of every day. Mm. So I, I love that you recognise that within yourself and you push, you're not pushing that, you're providing that service to people that may never have thought about it. And, mm. and now, have, have you had a success story? Have you had someone that you've seen completely shift their attitude or their ability or, or something with the work you've done? What's a success story? or a? I think it's more about helping people to feel more comfortable with themselves. So I think I've – I can't pinpoint one specific sp- success story because I feel like what I'm working with, it's much more intangible and it's much more of a person personal Thing. So, I mean, I'm not necessarily training people for weight loss or some aesthetic, tangible outcome. So I think that question could probably be answered best by some of my clients and, and students. But I think if if I walk away from a session knowing that I've helped someone be more comfortable in their body, more in tune with their body, more connective and responsive to their needs, their, their mental physical, emotional, energetic, spiritual needs, if I've helped one person do that, that they feel a little bit more connected with their body, then that's a success story for me. That's that's really all I need because at the end of the day, what, I'm, what I see myself doing is empower, helping other people to empower themselves to become more in tune with what they need in each moment. And that could mean anything. You know, sometimes that might mean in the moment, you know, I need to smoke a joint. Sometimes that's what really happens. It might be like, actually, that's what I need to do right now. Sometimes it might mean I need to go for a walk down in the parklands or, you know, or maybe I need to go to bed. So if I can help people give themselves more of what they need and recognise that, then for me that's a success. I labelled you a little bit earlier with the identity question, you know, that the idea of being a leader by being this peak of masculinity in a young sense, externally. And I labelled you that and maybe you were labelled by the the boy in grade six that said, why are you crying? You're not supposed to cry. Have you felt that you've needed to shed certain identities and images and in doing so you searched for other identities that – because I can almost tell that you're – from this conversation and knowing you also that your identities have vanished and you are you in a way and you'll continue to grow but you are now a a person that is comfortable in their own skin and they're willing to take even with the Bob Dylan idea some people would say no Bob Dylan is the best Bob Dylan is all that matters and they wear their Bob Dylan top and it's that celebrity almost but that's their identity they hinge themselves on his legacy and then everything that's associated with that your journey was one of maybe hinging yourself on certain identities to get away from others. Mm. Is there a story behind that? Is there something that you like recognise right now that you go, you know, there was a moment where you realised maybe you were hinging yourself on identities? Yeah, well, I guess I, where I'm at now is living life from the inside out. So, for example, I, I was vegan for a while. All right, now why was I vegan? I went vegan because 
well, I went vegetarian because there's a principle in yoga called ahimsa, which means nonviolence. So therefore, if I'm going to live by the principles of yoga, hey, maybe I should be nonviolent and not eat meat. And then the extension of that was, oh, maybe I'll go vegan. And then the sum total of that experience was I went vegan because I thought it was a good idea and also because I was restricting some of the foods I was eating because I had underlying issues and emotional eating so I just restricted even more the things I couldn't eat and then what happened was after a while my body said no this is fucked you can't keep doing this so from the inside my body said no no, no. you can't do this you need to we need other food sources we need to eat what we need to eat so that's probably a good example of living from the inside out so instead of being bombarded by all this, you know, messaging about well-being and health and getting overwhelmed by it and then trying everything, actually living and listening to my body and being like, do I really – what do I need now? Do I need to eat some bread? Yeah, I do. Maybe I even need some red meat today. All right, I might – That's. does that feel like what I need? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. So I think for me – living my own life and not saying that I I don't listen to anyone else but having the the ability to filter things and say well does that feel right to me yes or no or is that challenging and do I need to change my reaction or my response to this so for me it's more I'm more interested in it sounds cliche whatever but walking walking my own path and committing to that and I I've, I've found the more I've done that and more done what I what I want and need to do, the better my life has become. Uh, uh, taking, uh, for example, relationships. If I took on board every idea that my friends or family had about relationships, I probably might never have had a relationship. So, whereas if I, you know, if I follow my own my own heart or my own intelligence or wisdom. So it's about filtering and I guess recognising that we influence one another, we, we are all socialising one another but how much do I take on from the next person? How much do I agree with the next person or how much do I disagree? And, and sometimes that tension is really good. I can really disagree with someone and it pushes me off into another direction in my life. So the labels thing now I feel much less attached to the labels and more interested almost becoming more interested in not not giving a damn what the hell my life looks like from the outside and 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 you know hearing people's concerns but then also realizing maybe their concerns are projection maybe they're talking about their story maybe that's not doesn't feel true or real to me and then if something is and something is triggering then I've got to do some work around that or or just embrace embrace that yeah it almost means like a trust in your own intelligence and wisdom, as you said, your own feelings, that you – there are extremely intelligent people out there. There are scientists that have done work and said three times a week red meat's good but four is bad. One red wine a day but if you have three on a Saturday you're going to die ten years earlier, whatever it is. You're constantly being bombarded by this mm. and if you listen to it all, you're never going to be free. You're never going to be you because you're just listening yeah. to those projections. Yeah, so that's right is the first step to trust your own instincts and your own feelings and your own self first. Recognise that if you're doing something that makes you feel bad after that, if you've just eaten a tub of ice cream because you felt like you sure, wanted to sure. and you feel like death straight afterwards, or you might go, do you know, next time I have that feeling I've got to maybe think, am I stressed? 
Am I tired? Am I addicted to sugar? Sure. What is it? Sure. And if you're able to balance those two things with really close reflection and introspection on mm. on you and, and, and understanding that you aren't perfect and balance that out with the fact that I've lived a life, I've survived, I've made it through traumas that might be just mine, I've mm. experienced relationships and I've met people and I've read things and I've seen things that will eventually seep in and make me a person that is valid, a person that is in control of their destiny, a person that is the only person that can tell the, I'm the only person that can tell me what to do. Mm. And until you realize that, you're you're not in any you don't have power. You don't have that humanity that makes us us. Mm. And I went back to before, am I a leader because I'm told one? No, I'm a leader because I am one. Or I'm not. And mm. I have to make that decision. Yeah, yeah. And I can be on on a Monday in front of kids and then I might look up to some speakers that I've gone to see at a writers' festival and think that I'm going to take on board what they believe. And mm. I think I actually said that earlier, but now it's from a different perspective. It's how can I liberate myself from my own toxic thoughts, mm. from the world's toxic thoughts, but also engage with things that challenge me and trigger me and, and mm. might be bad. How, how How is that possible? Do you have a lesson or something to provide what no, maybe not a lesson for others because then we're just bombarding others with thoughts again but what worked for you was there a you know movement dance is there is there something that we haven't touched on perhaps that was a moment of clarity in your life mm. that helped you discover yourself yeah i'm sure there's probably been many yeah i remember it's yeah it's interesting one of my earliest memories was a feeling of waking up a couple of times when i was a child meaning waking up as in oh my god i'm actually alive and one of these memories i remember being my my cousin who's older who's actually my mother's cousin who's more like an uncle he gave me an old watch it was like an old casio casio watch you know it's early 90s or whatever and through this watch, I thought I could time travel. So I just had this moment where I'm time traveling through this watch. I, I, I watch, must have watched Bill and Ted or something like that. But then I just had this moment where I was at my family's house, which is up in the country and standing near this pine tree and just kind of like waking up, like this kind of thing of looking at the watch and being like, oh, my God, oh, actually, no, I'm not time traveling. I'm actually here right now in a body and there's a tree and it's like, whoa, it's like, shit, I'm alive, like whoa and i think there's been more moments like that in my life where it's just been and some of them have been through you know to be perfectly honest feeling like i've lost my mind like having you know and whether that's just being totally overwhelmed by things going on in my day-to-day -day life or yeah being in an altered state of some 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 type whether it's a psychedelic or or, or other kind of recreational substance and then just having a moment of, oh, my God, all right, I'm actually responsible to myself. Have I drunk any water? No, I need some water right now, like the basics. And um, so for me, just remembering that every moment's a waking moment and, and you know, from, from the moment I get up in the morning, just being aware, like just before I get up and jump out of bed, not that I even really jump out of bed, but just taking a few breaths and just being like, oh, I'm alive, you know, and, and living – really living life like that and, you know, to a degree 
you know, living in an affluent Western city like Melbourne and in Australia, to a degree we, we can have what we want but we also need to be aware of the impact we're having on other people and on the environment and, and the, the broader world. I guess what I'm trying to say is if we live life in alignment, things get better. And I'm saying that because there's been times when I've made decisions that weren't in alignment with other – weren't in alignment for me and it leads to – to bad consequences and I think we have to own our choices, accept the responsibility and also the the consequences and realising that sometimes we fuck up and, and, and that's a really good thing, making so-called mistakes, learning, errors and, and being open and, and sometimes just being an absolute beginner and saying, well, actually I don't even know what that concept is. Can you help me explain what on earth that topic is? So I guess part of it is being vulnerable and I think one of the biggest things for me is just being humble. Like I don't know fucking anything. What the hell do I know? What do I know? So just acting from a place of humility has helped me. It's funny that wisdom and knowing yourself almost requires humility and the fact that you know nothing at the same time. You know everything and you know nothing and harmonizing those two thoughts somehow <laughs> is what we need to do yeah. because if you become too arrogant and too sure of yourself yeah, yeah 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 you you make poor choices and if you if you're not aware of yourself and you're just listening to the outside noise you're not benefiting yourself either so and then obviously relationships become uh, less valuable and perhaps more toxic as you go along as well mm-hmm. are you on social media look i've definitely limited um my use of social media. I used to being in the wellness slash fitness health industry area. A lot of people use it, but I found that it actually was actually a waste of time. Didn't get it hasn't gotten me any business. What's gotten me business is actually being proactive and going out and getting clients. So I've actually it's been quite freeing to get away from using social media. I am a little bit more for family, staying in touch with like family overseas in Italy and my own family here in Australia and one of my brothers lives in Canada as well. So now I see social media as more of a tool. I see social media much like I see email and having a phone number Mm. and it's just like it's a necessary thing Um, and, yeah, it can be entertaining and it can be good but there's still a part of me – I recently did think about letting go of Facebook but then I thought actually it's a, it's a really interesting exposure to friends and family and there was a part of me that's like, well, actually, no, I don't have to have a really strong emotional reaction and say that's it, I'm never going on there again, which I might have done in the past whereas now I'm just more like, well, look, it's there. If I want to use it, I can use it. And then I'll notice if it's taking up time in my day and I'm, and I'm like, why the hell am I on here? What the hell am I getting out of this? Is this giving me energy or is it depleting my energy? Maybe I should turn my phone off. Mm. So, yeah, not really that much on social media. Where do you find the time to really pay attention? Do you meditate? Do you do it through movement? What, what, how do you do it? Yeah, for me it's more my – broadly speaking, my two main practices is mindfulness, which includes meditation but includes being aware of – my senses, what's occurring in each moment around me. So that includes something like, yeah, meditating in the morning, 
or it could just include going to the park and just sitting with my feet on the ground and, and everything in between. And then movement could just be simply if I'm sitting, being aware of my spine, okay. And just approaching everything as a practice. So I think this has been informed by, for example, being a qualified yoga teacher and there's a lot of voices in the yoga world who are like, you must practice every single day otherwise you're a terrible human being. I'm overstating the fact a little bit. Then I realized, oh, shit, now I have to do yoga, actual yoga every single day. And then I was like, but but I also teach this other thing. And I also like going for a run. And I like riding my bike. Well, why can't that be my yoga? Well, it is. It all is. So that's the way I see everything. So for me, it's more seeing life as a practice, seeing the whole thing as a practice and something that I do every day and every moment. And and some days I'm going to – some days I want to feel like – meditating and some days I won't and actually recognizing that and being like well that's going to have an impact if I don't meditate today and then being like well I'm going to own that choice and I'll meditate tomorrow I'll meditate tonight so being flexible I think it's trying to find a balance between walking the line of discipline but then also flexibility and then also another one another thing would be the line of freedom and responsibility so I can have freedom in my life but that's tied to my responsibility and my being more responsible may give me more freedom so that seems like a, a good guiding principle do you worry about your future at all are you excited by your future mm. how do you look at the the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, well, I just turned 32, so I feel like – I kind of feel like I've got the whole – I feel like a lot of things are possible and but it's up to me to, to work on them. No, I'm pretty excited. I mean, yeah, there's obviously environmental stuff that's going on and at, at my – maybe not even pessimistic work, but on one hand there's a part of me that's like, well, all right, if, if – if there's a full-scale environmental crisis and human beings are wiped from the planet, maybe that's the best thing that ever happens to the planet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but am I scared? No, I'm not scared. I know, I know when I find myself falling into fear and I can feel how much that drains my energy and how times in my life when I've lived from a scarcity mentality of I don't have enough or I'm not good enough and I make decisions using that software, so to speak... It doesn't end well or it just means I've got more of a hill to climb up afterwards. So, yeah. Realising that we have a, everything in abundance, even in, if we look at our neighbour, perhaps not. Mm. But you said it before, you know, affluent, urban, white, male. Yes, we've got our own issues and yes, we've got our own burdens but we live life in abundance and, and it's more about letting go to be free rather than mm. than hoarding and gathering mm, to yeah, be free. Yeah, it's the shedding, yeah. Whereas humans have this uh, innate thing that there is scarcity. There was scarcity for however many hundreds of thousands of years of evolution that humans mm. were struggling and, and now we don't really know how to live with abundance and how to let, that, let go of that unless we really do pay attention. Yeah, yeah. Like we're privileged so... It's about using the privilege and, and my parents always showed me like you got we've got to help people that are, you know, less fortunate than us. You know, using our privilege 
and and using you know me using the fact yeah I'm a I'm a straight white cisgendered heterosexual man living in Australia like yeah I've got it pretty easy acknowledging that and then being an ally to people while not getting in the way and trying to think that I know actually trying to help people to help them in their struggle and and sometimes I've learned that that actually means shutting the fuck up and not saying anything and actually recognising how privileged I am that I actually don't need to talk. Continuing to have the floor and be that voice, even if it is on behalf of minority groups that you think you're helping, you're still taking up that floor at times. Sometimes you need to be that that vessel. But um, we need to open up the floor to lots and lots of others in this world mm. that don't have it. Those Indigenous people in Peru... Uh, well, indigenous people right here in Melbourne. Indigenous people here in the suburbs. Oh, absolutely. You know? I was going to Everywhere, go list yeah, the people yeah. that you've mentioned. Yeah, but yeah. you mentioned the the full pessimism. So do you – I talked about the next 10, 20 years for you and then we went to a more global thing and that's where I often go. I, I tend to avoid thinking about me and move towards the global issues. So you do worry about – the environment. Do you think that the environment and caring about that and potentially humans being gone may make it better, but you still have a deep love for humanity? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's the idea, the reason why we're in this the situation we're in and not to get into a debate about, you know, science or anything like that, but, but the, the fact is are human beings really looking after the planet? Are we really doing the best of what we can to look after our, our own life on individual, collective and, and broader scale issues, we're not. But do we have the capacity to turn that around? Of course we do. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of change. We're all going to have to change our lifestyles. So I think the saying, yeah, if, if humans just, you know, fucked off and died, it would be great. But then what's the point of us being here? We've got capacity to be stewards of each other and of the – each other meaning everything – all that's in the planet. So we could fail at doing that or we could actually do something about it. And I'm not saying that I've got all the issues but a lot of the problem is as well is the the systems in place in our society and you don't have to be – you don't even have to be highly politicised to realise that we live in a fairly unjust world that's getting more and more skewed towards that. I'm pretty hopeful of the younger generations. I've been spending more time. I try and have dialogue with people of all generations and I've been having more dialogue with younger generations and I'm pretty hopeful like that they're very switched on and that they can be part of the solution. But also, you know, we've all got to just be honest with ourselves and and realise that we're all contributing to it. Like, you know, yeah, all right, if I go for a flight to Italy, how many bloody carbon emissions is that? I need to take responsibility for that and we need to make choices. So I'm critically opt- I'm critically optimistic. Like I'm optimistic of things but then I'm also quite critical to say, yeah, the world's a mess. Yeah, this is what's going on. You straddle the line of pessimism yeah, and maybe. optimism. I'm comfortable, with the, I'm comfortable with the so-called kind of negativity or critical. I feel much more comfortable now talking about things that might be perceived as negative and be more emotionally attached. Whereas in the past, I might have got very emotionally attached to them to my own health detriment.
this probably like if I was to say one last thing, it's probably just the massive influence that we all have on each other, you know. And I'm saying that as someone with older brothers and sisters, and and you know, my parents have been been together, you know, for forty plus years, and just like the influence that my family's had on me, the influence of my friends, the influence that absolute strangers have had, and just that capacity for us to influence one another we say oh you know don't say that to the child you know they're impressionable we're all impressionable i'm impressionable i'm an adult someone who says something to me i could be quite impressionable so just remembering the influence that we actually have on each other to enact change within ourselves is is massive and i think that's where part of the hope lies we can we can we can change we can all change saying oh it's just how i am that's bullshit it's a cop-out we can all do better. We can all, you know, including myself, we can all do a little bit better. We can all constantly improve without being harsh on ourselves of what we've done and if we don't do it on Monday, we try again on Tuesday. We don't beat ourselves up on it. That's it. Yeah. And just laughing at ourselves, you know, I laugh at myself all the time how ridiculous I am. And also, yeah, we talked about the mind earlier and seeing like, oh, this is a mental story that my mind's created. How, how funny, you know, this is – I think of the mind sometimes as, and I often use this when I'm teaching, it's as if the mind at times is like a child. You're, you're, you're in a – say I'm in a supermarket with a young child. We're walking down the aisle. Oh, I want a chocolate bar. I want a bag of chips. I want this. I want that. I want this. I want that. And the mind can be like that sometimes. Where's something, you know, the mind's like, where's something that I can hold on to? Where's something I can grasp? So if I notice that – I've got two choices. I could either say to the child in the supermarket, get back here, you're not having any of that, you know, and, and slap the kid on the face. Or I could look at the kid and say, hey, you're not going to get the chocolate bar today. Like you don't really need that, you know. Let's, it's, you know, come back here, come back to the trolley, give me a hand pushing the trolley and, and be gentle. So I could do the same thing with my mind. I could say, oh, I'm an idiot. Why the hell am I thinking about that? That's the worst thing. Or I could say oh, that's interesting and kind of smile to myself and say, oh, that's quite a thought. Like, look where my mind's gone. Now let's come back to writing this journal. Do you think that a lot of parents or a lot of people possibly give the 30 packets of chips to the child, whether it's themselves or to a literal child? Sometimes Mm. we need to be really careful that you're not doing a disservice to someone by saying no or to yourself. Sometimes... It's important to be very aware of what you want and realising that it may not be a need. And mm. and you're not slapping yourself in the face. Yeah, You're not giving yeah. yourself it either yeah, because you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, stuff it. I've had a hard day. I'm going to eat that or I'm going to do that. I'm going to mm, – mm. you're in that middle ground where it's like, you know what, I deserve to feel this way. I've had yeah. a tough day. But you know what? I'll do something that really I know makes me feel good. So I'll meditate or I'll go for a walk or I'll ring a friend instead of just staying in my own head. Mm. And, and likewise with relationships, I'll give in to what you want. I'll do that. I'll, I'll be, sub, uh, you know, a servant to your will, mm. whatever, whoever that is. And then you end up trapped. You just you, you forget who you are and it's really hard to dig yourself out of that. So when you said earlier... Yeah. That constant drinking of the water throughout the day, that thinking of, of what your needs are as you go yeah, rather than yeah. getting into a state where I'll think about this in 10 years yep. and then all of a sudden you've got all these regrets and hurts that 
you have to really work hard to try and get out of. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a solo thing, you know. It's about having people – like I've got a business coach and I honestly do not know where the hell I would be without her. And having people around us, you know, there might be friends, there might be family, people to help us. We're not alone. We, we can never be alone even though we might think we are. There's always people to help us but we need to – recognize that relying on other people is a strength and something that i've probably struggled with in my own life is is seeking out other people who can help me but there's always people and sometimes we don't even know they might pop up when we least expect them and and having and if we don't have those people around us we got to seek them out you know and and today with communication today it's probably never been easier you know people are often posting something on Facebook, hey, I'm looking for this. And then 10 people say, try this person. And yeah, using that support and noticing that it's not all on us. It's not, you know, it's it's not all on us. We, we have people that can help us. And if we need help, we need to seek it out. Absolutely loved this conversation, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Awesome. Arnie. Yeah. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, please send an email to momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.